Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with a correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. The work of the True 316 Foundation is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Listeners like you are joining us as members of the True 316 Foundation and support the work to true the verse of Genesis 3.16 and the seven key passages on women and men. It turns out, when Genesis 3.16 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And at the end of this episode, we'll tell you about a special gift we have for new members. And now, Enjoy today's episode of the Eden Podcast. For season 11 on the Eden Podcast, we're going back in time and playing audio that we've never played for you before. I was doing a private Zoom series of sessions with a number of students, and I used PowerPoint slides that I referred to as we went along. You can see these presentations in full on our YouTube channel, I'd love to have you subscribe. It's simply TRU316. That's T-R-U-316. And now, let's get started. In 310, the man tells God he hid himself because he was afraid and was naked. Well, whose fault was that? He went ahead and he ate that fruit that he wasn't supposed to, and that's what came out. So is the man saying that God stopped short when he created everything? Should God have created clothes? Is it God's fault that the man felt naked and afraid? What was he afraid of? What did he fear? Later on, when God says, uh, you're going to be out of Garden of Eden and you're going to sweat, is it because he had too much clothes on? All of this is very complicated. Obviously, something is wrong. The man did not accept the responsibility for what he did, and that's denial. Denial is a classic symptom of sin. The man is experiencing symptoms that come from a deep-rooted problem. Not focusing on these symptoms or their cause is an exercise in denial. So God asks the man in verse 11, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God had spoken to him earlier about this tree. In fact, God had given him a command not to eat from this one tree. Disobeying God was sin. Does the man even answer the question? No. At this point, the man resorts to deflective finger-pointing. Of the four personalities involved at the tree, the man could have pointed to himself. He had made his own wayward choice. Or Or he could have pointed to the serpent, attributing to him, appropriately enough, his responsibility in being the tempter, and the enemy. The man mentions neither himself nor the serpent tempter. Instead, he attempts to implicate the other two in the garden. The woman had given him the fruit, but not maliciously and not with the intent of a tempter. Nevertheless, he points a finger at her. In verse 12, he begins, the woman, he points to the woman, and then blames God, responding, the woman whom you gave to be with me She gave me from the tree, and I ate. Such audacious barbs and retort to God's questions come from a person who's hardened his heart and sinned knowingly. Even then, he still has a bit of good theology. He never says, the woman whom you gave me, 
like a lot of people do when they sum up this verse. No, he says, the woman you gave to be with me, that the face-to-face -face person there. That's who, he even knew that. The New Testament confirms that he was not deceived. In 1 Timothy 2.14, and in another place, it says he ate the fruit with his eyes open, with full and conscious awareness of what he was doing. And then God turns away from the man. If you had been face-to-face -face with God and basically challenging him, how would you have felt to have God just turn away at that point? The woman, in response to God's inquiry, replies in three Hebrew words, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She points to the serpent, describes accurately what it did, deceived her, and acknowledges what she did wrong. The woman and the man now have both admitted to having eaten, but there's a notable difference. One takes a very circuitous route in that admission. The man blames his human colleague, and then God. The woman and the man each transgressed God's command. Both were guilty of doing what they understood God had told them not to do. For this, they each would die. But that's old news, frankly. They each had died. We'd already seen changes in them both. Then God turns to the serpent in verses 14 and 15 to, to address him. Aha, the man may have thought, God turned away from me to the woman. Now he's talking to the serpent. The other two are in trouble. Well, I and my new wisdom, well, I'm fooling God. It appears that the deny, man's denial and deflection are working. Perhaps the new wisdom the serpent promised him is making the difference. Perhaps he really can engage God in a verbal duel and win. No. In verse 17, God will turn to the man and address him in an exactly parallel way to how he addresses the serpent. These patterns that I keep referring to and that I learned as my wife Joy did her doctoral dissertation on Genesis 2 and 3 and especially verse 16 in chapter 3, these patterns are similar to what in English we would call suprasegmental phonemes. I remember in college I was a speech minor and I came across this wonderful phrase, suprasegmental phoneme, and I hooked onto it. And basically what it means is pitch, stress, juncture, nasalization, voice or voicelessness in clusters of a language that occur simultaneously with a succession of segmental phonemes. What does that mean? Well, in English, and, any, and I know in French too, you can sometimes figure out what a person is saying just by the musical notes and the rhythm and the speed and the pattern of what they say. So you could preach the alphabet, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R. Well, you get the idea. Those are the suprasegmental phonemes, and they mean something in English. Well, those same meanings, very important things tied in with the vocal speech that we have, is found in the Hebrew patterns. In fact, so much so that the way the patterns are put together actually conveys meaning along with the words, just like the way we sing song our, vo our voices goes along with the words and gives meaning. So what's going on in these patterns is we're getting details. Now, here's the pattern in the God's speech to the serpent and in God's speech 
to the man. On one side we have the serpent, one through six. On the other side we have the man, one through six. Because, Hebrew word key. Cursed, Hebrew word arur. Then the object of the curse is described. One case it's the serpent, the other case it's the ground. The nature of the curse in both cases involves eating. The duration of the curse is the same, all the days of your life. And there's a repeated verb that sounds pretty much the same. To the serpent, it's shuf, shuf. To the man, it's shuv, shuv. Look at these parallels. What does it tell you? A lot of people say, well, God cursed the serpent and the woman and the man. Not if you pay attention to the patterns here. God clearly cursed because of the serpent, and God clearly cursed something because of the man. He was dealing with two recalcitrant rebels, and he speaks to them in the same patterns. But when he gets to Genesis 3.16, it's 11 Hebrew words. The word because is not there. The word cursed is not there. Eating is not there. All the days of your life is not there. A repeated verb is not there. Everything possible is built into the Hebrew pattern by the writer so to show us that God's words to her are not like God's words to those two. If you aren't taking the form into account, you are possibly missing or even changing the meaning. So here we just showed the two speeches to the serpent and the man. They're the same. Here we also have seen the two words in the linchpin of Genesis 3.16. Sorrowful toil linked down to the man. Conception linked up to the offspring that God referred to in the serpent in verses 17 and 15 that are on either side of 316. You can't take apart these two words. You can't drop either one and maintain the linchpin in 316. We have the up and down form of Genesis chapters 2 going up and Genesis chapter 3 going down. Form, form, form conveys all kinds of meaning. You have to take it into account. In our coming question and answer session, we'll look closely at what God actually says to the serpent tempter in verses 14 and 15. We want to focus on verse 17 now. God said, well, this is what you did. After describing the man unfavorably in his warning to the woman in verse 16, God, the man listened to that. Then God brushes aside the man's attempt to divert attention and blame God from earlier. He gives the man no room for escape as he describes exactly what took place when the man disobeyed and ate. In God's words to the man, he refers to each point the man had made. Some people say, why did God start talking about this? Why did God mention that? He's picking up on what the man had said, and he's replying to everything he had said. God states the real sin, because you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you must not eat from it. So what was his real sin? Some suggest the man's sin was listening to his wife. That's not a sin. In Genesis 21, 12, God tells Abraham to listen to his wife. The Bible doesn't teach that you're not to listen to your wife. In the Garden of Eden, the man sins because he disobeys what God said. He, God told him, don't do this. He did it. He sinned. Well, we had a fresh look when we studied Genesis 3.16. Let's have a fresh look at these verses in 3.17 through 19. 17a, to the man, he said, 
because you listened to the voice of your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you must not eat from it. 17b, cursed is the ground because of you. 17c, in sorrowful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will produce for you, and you will eat plants of the field. And verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The sentence for death had already been announced. It was non-negotiable. Spiritual death had already occurred. Physical mortality was already at work. The man couldn't hide from his sin any better than a moose can hide behind a sapling. Verse 17, God refers to the man's own words and then states his real sin. Because you ate. When God addressed the man, his first act of business was to identify the man's sin and the state of the man's heart when he sinned. When God judged the man, we have the question now of how was it that the words to the woman and the words to the man were different? I think it's because we're talking about a difference in the first or second degree. Because the man purposely sinned, God imposed a curse. Because the serpent tempter purposely sinned, God imposed a curse. In modern law courts, a distinction is made between what is called first degree or willful murder and second degree manslaughter. In this case, the man is guilty of disobedience in the first degree. The crafty serpent received a curse. Cursed is the ground because of you is what the man heard. The man himself was not cursed. Neither human was cursed. When God turned to him after saying to the serpent, cursed are you, and begins to say cursed is, the man could have expected, oh no, I'm going to be cursed. And then God says the ground. Whew, that was close. But God's love overflows and, and he wasn't cursed. And she certainly wasn't cursed. He'd heard the words in sorrowful toil. The Hebrew word is itzabon. You will eat from it all the days of your life. So the man learned that he too would experience this sorrowful toil. Had he grinned thinking, oh, wow, the woman's got this problem now. She's going to have itzabon, sorrowful toil. No, he will be living outside of Eden. He will be living among thorns and thistles. And he will be living in an earth that won't respond to him well. He will have sorrowful toil as he thinks of what he had and now what he's got. When I was a, a young lad, I, uh, I volunteered with my elderly uncles to go out in their field in the farm in Pennsylvania and uh, pick weeds. And as we picked weeds, they were hairy little thistly pricker things and uh, they stung. I remember starting to sweat and I, I had glasses in those days like I have now and uh, the sweat would run down into my glasses. Sometimes I would scratch my face and I got dirt on my face and I began to get dirt on my glasses. So I took off my glasses. I kept picking those thistles out. And as I did, the, the sweat couldn't run down my glasses. It began to run down my nose, right off the tip of my nose and then down to the ground. And that's what the Hebrew says. Actually, it says, by the sweat of your nose, you will eat bread. And that's, that's what he got. And then, basically, God said, you're going to go from sweat 
to dust. There's an awful lot in the lesson, Think Again About Adam. There's an awful lot that we've heard from the rest of the world and well-meaning people, but from their ignorance or maybe from their prejudice, they've added details. We have to be careful about that. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast, brought to you by the members of the True 316 Foundation. Research into the Old and New Testaments by Dr. Joy Fleming and Reverend Bruce C.E. Fleming forms the base of all our work. Joy is a former Old Testament professor and is a practicing licensed psychologist. Bruce is the author of the Eden Book series, which starts with Book 1, The Book of Eden, Genesis 2-3. We invite you to become a donor member of the True 316 Foundation as together we seek to true the verse of Genesis 316 and related passages. When you become a member, we'll send you an autographed copy of the Book of Eden. Sign up today by going to true316.com member. That's tru316.com member.